0: your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and happy Friday. I'm Tracy B. Wilson and I'm Holly Fry. We talked about food safety. This we sure week, did. And how a whole framework for food safety came from the space program. Yeah, I had not realized how involved Pillsbury was in yeah, all yeah. of this. Which is like significantly involved. Yeah, there so there were several companies that were involved in one way or, or another with making food for the space program, but like when it came to the development of Hassa, Pillsbury is the one that was the biggest uh, player um their work on things like microbiology and controlling microbial stuff was also connected to their being able to sell shelf stable dough for people to mm-hmm. cook at home so they like there was stuff about their business that made sense as a potential partner for NASA to send stuff into space. We didn't get a, into a lot about the crumbliness factor of the food, because that was fairly easily solved and also not really related to the food safety aspect of it. But, I'd, like, I hadn't really thought about the part of, like, if you send a protein bar into space, uh-huh. it's going to live through a whole lot of vibrations and jostling and stuff during the, like, the liftoff and all of that, and then Uh, They weren't really sure, like, how is, how would a crumbly bar type thing, would it just come apart in zero gravity? Like, we need to make sure that we don't wind up with little bits of food stuck in the instrument panels. Um, And I, it had not entirely occurred to me that, like, anybody would kind of say, is this food just going to come apart at the seams in outer space? (laughs) Um do you remember a while back I think maybe before we were doing this show when uh you were site director for House to Works and I was the tech editor us getting into a discussion about uh, a paper on fractals and food safety No and how I think there had been maybe an NPR piece about the space program and them talking about food safety and specifically one of the astronauts really wanted because they'll take astronaut requests of like Mm -hmm. what food would you love to have and they'll try to make a space safe version and one of the astronauts had wanted barbecue Mm -hmm. and like how (laughs) tricky that was and I think I ended up pitching an article on fractals because of it. That's cool. Uh, which we did. And it was many moons ago, so I would not expect you to remember it. But I always think about it when I eat barbecue now. Which I don't do very often, but sometimes. I do love barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there have been some interesting papers on that. Um, yeah. Like fractal analysis and food structure. And just to in case anybody doesn't see the connection there, right? Like fractals measure these repeating patterns in in anything. But when applied to food, you're thinking about things like surface area because the Mm -hmm. more surface area food has the more points it has where it can become somehow a growth point for something yucky that you don't want in your person and so something like barbecue even if you have like a clump of it say the size of a golf ball because of all the little ridges of pieces sticking out it has tons more surface area than that same clump of golf ball if it's like a clean scoop of mashed potatoes Mm -hmm. um so that's we had a big discussion about it many, many, yeah. literally, probably 12 and a half years ago, maybe, <laughs> maybe longer. So long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I grew up in a household where there was always a focus on food safety. Um, like we grew pretty much all of our vegetables, and there was a whole, like, freezing, canning, drying process Mm -hmm. all summer and into the fall to, like, preserve all of this food. And there was, like, just a lot of uh, my mom being very careful to can things in a way to prevent us from getting botulism from it, like that kind of stuff. Um, And then when we were kids, uh, my brother got salmonella, um, not from something he ate. Um, We... We pinpointed the likely cause as a turtle that he was playing with in the creek behind my parents, or my grandparents' house, and then, like, not thoroughly enough washing his hands afterward before we ate. And none of the rest of the family got it. It was only my brother. Uh, and after that, uh, potential sources of salmonella were, like, locked down. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> previously, like even with uh, there just being a lot of focus on making things, making sure things were cooked thoroughly and the like, the correct steps to can things, uh, we were allowed to do things like lick the beaters after the cake got mixed, um, but that was no lo- no more of the licking the beaters after no. that. No, um, at at the time. My mom's thought process was uh, the egg because eggs are a potential right. source of salmonella. Flour, actually, is a thing that uh, in more recent years, people have become aware of different things that can contaminate flour. Uh, we've said this a little bit in the show, but like so many of the big outbreaks now have nothing to do with with meat or chicken or eggs or the yeah. things that people have thought of as, like, the big sources of f- of foodborne illness for a long time. It's cantaloupe and spinach and vegan crumbles. I have a question for you, because I know you are, I would rate you as very keenly aware at all times about food safety. Yeah. In a way that, like, I'm a little more cavalier. Which isn't to say that I'm like, yeah, dirt's great, but I just, I recognize that there are things I cannot control. And so part of me is like, I'm not going to get too hung up on this because yeah, I wake up with a cat sitting on my face half the time. <laughs> like, I can't get too precious about certain yeah. things. But I do wonder what your position is on flips. By which I mean, in case anybody doesn't know, a cocktail made with a whole egg in it. Yeah, I don't drink them very often just because the texture of them is a little uh not my favorite, but I am less concerned about them because as I understand it the alcohol in them makes it a little bit safer. Right. right. And there's a lot of stuff that to me is like a like a risk analysis, right? Like I do eat sushi even though sushi is a higher risk food because I like get it from restaurants where I trust that they are taking the appropriate precautions and buying sushi grade fish and, uh, and that kind of thing. But, like, I also, if I get a burger in a restaurant, I always order the burger medium well because that's, like, the most safe temperature. And that was the case for all of us in the two years of my career that we, that I wrote about food safety for my job, uh, I worked in this creative department of this company that sold cleaning and sanitation supplies. So all of our whole jobs was about like cleaning product labeling and writing and designing newsletters to send to restaurants and grocery stores about keeping things clean and sanitary. And so when all of us went out to eat as a group, uh, often somebody was like checking ahead of time on the website to be like, what is the sanitation grade of the restaurant? And then all of us always were ordering our burgers medium well um it's one of those things where, you know, is it two decades later almost? Uh it's like it's I'm probably more likely to get food poisoning from the salad than right? from the burger because uh requirements on on the meat handling are have become a lot strict and in some ways like the produce has lagged behind a little bit. I I am a rare meat eater. Mm-hmm. Like I'm that person that loves a blue steak. Oh, steak is different to me because it's the exterior of the steak that's the bigger risk. Right. It's when you get all the ground meat ground up together um, that's the different... I also love a rare burger, but I, yeah. I upgraded to medium rare <laughs> <laughs> because it made Brian so nervous all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, also, just for clarity on the flip thing, in case anybody doesn't know, a flip involves a whole egg and some sweetener usually... It's different than if you get a drink made with egg white foam, which oh, is sure. just the white. And those are usually, cons- like, I know people that will do an egg white drink and will not do a flip because they get mm-hmm. just, the whole egg makes them a little more nervous. Just in case anyone was like, wait, I, I don't. But the- what am I doing? Yeah. 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 Usually a little, oh, I love a little cognac flip. Ooh, mm-hmm. That's a great way to spend your evening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do. I just, they're easy to make. They're really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I know some bars have switched over to doing pasteurized egg white, like the mm-hmm. pre packaged. You have to shake those a lot harder, though, to get the level of froth that you would get from a if you just separated a fresh egg yourself. It's mm-hmm. a big thing. Sorry, I'm always talking about cocktails. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. (laughs) I often laugh and I bet you cringe when you see like on social media uh there will be those like threads going around about you know when you walk into a restaurant where they kind of yell at you and their food safety grade is like a C that it's going to be the best meal of your life.
1: <laughs> and, like,
0: <sighs> and that is often very delicious it's true. But um I also am keenly aware of of their safety grades in restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. Also, not a perfect system, but also, I, you know, if I walk into a place in the grades of C, I'm like, yikes, I'm probably leaving unless there's no other option. Right. See, I know you don't watch Bob's Burgers, but there's a whole health inspector through line on that show. Yeah. That you might find hilarious. Um, there was a restaurant when I was living in Atlanta. Oh, I know what this is. I think. Oh, I don't know if you do. Um it was a place that I had eaten a lot and the, it was like their their rest their grades are always you know pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. And then they f- like straight up failed a health inspection. um and I and then after that it was like, high a every time and I was like I actually have more confidence in that restaurant because somebody messed up and they fixed the problem and now it's a priority is that without naming names because I don't want to was that a sushi place it was okay it it was exactly what I was thinking about yeah um yes I remember that being very scandalous because it was a sushi place everyone I think that we both knew would like that was one of the favorite sushi places yeah 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 Uh, And then they had, it was, like, dramatic the way that thing rippled through Atlanta because a lot of people love to eat there. Right. (laughs) And like you said, whatever it was, they were either having a really awful day or had, like, a really awful, you know, one thing or, like, an employee that was not being careful. Yeah. And then that was not the case anymore ever again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to a raw thing like sushi, like, I like Feeling safe eating it, knowing that I'm taking a risk by eating it. Yeah, I also didn't realize how recent a lot of these regulations and laws and guidelines were. Yeah, right. Like at one point, we're talking about like a 1996 piece of legislation. I'm like, I got married that year. That's not that far back. Yeah, <laughs> this is all pretty well, recent. Well, and I like I remember the when the Jack in the Box outbreak happened. And it wasn't the only big outbreak connected to, like, a restaurant chain that happened right around that time. But, like, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. That was, like, I was in college at that point. I did not live anywhere near where the outbreak was actually happening. But, like, even in the, we did not have social media. We only kind of had the internet. We had all heard about the outbreak. Like, it was a whole big thing, and people were very upset, like, because people want to be able to eat food that doesn't make them sick. Right. Or worse. Yeah. Yeah, because that strain of E. coli can indeed kill people. It's it's very dangerous. Also, this is why I trust no soup. Yeah. I don't eat soup. No. Almost ever. I will <laughs> occasionally myself make a ch- a creamy chowder when I'm craving it. But that's it. I don't normally, I'll never order it in a restaurant. Yeah. Not a soup gal. Yeah. It's the thing that I think about a lot. Occasionally, uh, Patrick and I have been traveling somewhere. Um, and I'll be like, oh, I think I'll get the sushi. And I'm like, why Why would you eat in an unknown to us sushi restaurant while we are on a trip? Right. At like an airport like this <laughs> That is, like, not not the risk that I w- am okay with taking. Uh, but, you know, ordering it from the restaurant where we eat at all the time, that's different. It was exactly travel where my beloved said to me, please stop ordering your burgers as rare as you'll go. <laughs> you know, that was how like, it would be, as rare as you'll go. And he was like, this makes me nervous when we travel. Because if you yeah. get sick, we're in rough shape. Yeah, it's like, yeah. okay, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. A lot of my stuff is also making sure, as much as possible, that anything I make for someone else is not going to make them sick. Right. That's, like, the time I become the most anal retentive about cleanliness and safety I will ever be. Mm-hmm. Right? If I'm, like, sautéing some stuff for myself, I'm a little more sloppy jalopy. But if it's, like, someone else is coming or I'm baking, for no, forget it. I become really, really, like, put the cats away. Like <laughs> <laughs> My cats don't go on the counters, but just in walking around the house, they're sure. little fuzz, you know, hair, yeah. cat hair gets in the air. No, we, we sequester them, we air vacuum the whole area, and then yeah. I bake. <laughs> My cats are not supposed to be on the counters, but I sure do sometimes hear the sound of a cat jumping down from something in the vicinity of the kitchen. I think I can count on one hand the number of times our current crop has ever been on a counter. And now they're all old enough that they're like, too high. They don't want to jump up there. Yeah. Now, folks know so much about our food practices (laughs) and cats. My distrust of soup. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. On the show this week, we talked about Louis Wayne and Louis Wayne's cat pictures. We sure did. I love all of them. I love the cat pictures. I love the realistic cats. I love the cats in human clothes. Uh, I love the vivid landscapes that some people thought were, like, not as good quality as his earlier work. I think they're great. I love the kaleidoscope cats. Of course, in any person's artwork that spans through the late 19th and early 20th century, there's stuff that's very dated or insensitive by today's standards. With that caveat, boy, I just, like, spent a lot of time looking at Louis Wayne cat (laughs) pictures. I love the, um, the one that, I think it's just called The Cat's Birthday Party, and it's a bunch of cats holding champagne coupes, And they all look so happy, and they're wearing little collars, like human, um, you know, like a shirt collar. Oh, fun. I love that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um... At one point we were talking and I was trying to madly write down some notes because the Madame Tabby project that he worked on and that story, it wasn't until we, I had read this outline and I was, uh, I wasn't familiar with that work, but it wasn't until we were saying the words that I was like, this sounds a lot like the plot of the Studio Ghibli film The Cat Returns. <laughs> <laughs> Which um has some significant differences, but I really think that had to have been an influence on that film, which is quite lovely. And there is a King of Cats, which is pretty great, who is this giant, fat, rolly-eyed yeah, yeah, yeah. Persian. Um, but that plot is not so different in terms of being allowed to go to the kingdom of cats. Yeah. Uh, And what that means. I've seen that movie. It's been a very long time. I love it. One of the things about Louis Wayne is that uh, it's tricky to pin down information specifically about his life um there is one biography that i know of that was written in the 60s that i had to get an out of print copy from a university art library to be able to read it for this um and and so like getting specific detail and stuff is hard um And as with many things, the specific detail may indeed exist somewhere in the UK in somebody's attic or an archive or, uh, you know, old hospital records or whatever, but like, I just don't have access to them. Uh, But so much of his life has become, I think, not necessarily by his own doing, just embellished to make it be more about cats um, or embellished to kind of romanticize the idea of, like, his mental state. One of the things that I didn't really get into is there is a newspaper article about him that was published in the U.S. that's just got a bunch of stuff in it that is totally made up, and it has this whole section about which hand he was using to draw with. And the writer implies that he was draw he was drawing like negative subjects with his left hand, like he would draw the bad cats with the left hand and the good cats with the right hand. Like all no cats evidence. are good, first of all. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> but... they are all good and all good and terrible is how I feel sometimes. Yes. Oh, I always say, like, uh, "Rest in peace, Mr. Burns." Was the best worst cat I ever yeah. knew. Right? He was yeah. terrible, and I adored him. I will often say of mine, you are so good and so bad. (laughs) Um, So anyway, like, there's just stuff that's completely made up that seems to be part of the Louis Wayne mythology. Also, I, when I started working on this, mentally pronounced his name as Louis because it is spelled L-O-U-I-S. And as a person living in the United States, everybody that I've known, whose name is spelled L-O-U-I-S, is pronounced it Lewis. And if they went by Louie, that was like a nickname. Right. Spelled (laughs) L-O-U-I-E. Right. It's one of those things where if someone goes by Louie, people will be like, is someone in your family Cajun? I'm not even kidding. It happens in the South all the time. And so that's, And that's the thing, like, if somebody had French ancestry or if we were, like, saying an anglicized version of a French name, I would, L-O-U-I-S would be Louis. It never, I never realized that a lot of people um, in the UK have the name spelled L-O-U-I-S pronounced as though it is spelled L-O-U-I-E. And I had that dawning revelation while trying to confirm. After having watched that movie that came out, uh, which is streaming on, I think, Amazon Prime here, um, having watched that movie and been like, they just called him Louis the whole time. Was that his nickname? And I, like, went down this whole rabbit hole and was like, oh, no, a lot of people in the UK spell their name like this and pronounce it this way. And that, uh, I just, I don't know, I never, maybe because I'm not, like, a British royal family aficionado, because um, there are also Louis in the British royal family who it's spelled Louis and pronounced Louie. Well, the thing, too, in the U.S., right, if you're going to go by Louis, often that S is replaced with an E. Yeah, 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 that's what I'm saying. So, yeah. it, like, we just would never... <laughs> like, yeah. It, they are two different names in the U.S., is what I'm saying. Yeah. Pretty clearly they're two different names. Yeah, we have people like Louis Armstrong that's usually spelled with an S, but then I'm like, in my head, that Louis was a nickname. Yeah, and, like, Lewis know. was his full name. I don't, it's no a whole, either. I this is my whole weird rabbit <laughs> hole that I went down in this episode. I looked at cat pictures, and I thought about how to say Louie or Lewis. Now, I have always wondered, because um I have had, like, a passing knowledge of him, but, you know, not somebody I had studied a lot, but it always struck me as odd that people would talk about the progression of his art. Style and the stuff he was doing that was a little more experimental mm-hmm. as so surprising and unusual a development in his later life. Mm-hmm. Um, one, because part of me is like, uh, all artists experiment and evolve, but yeah. that's that's one thing. But the other is, have these people never looked at his ceramics because those cats are freaky deaky looking? Yeah, they are. I love them. <laughs> I mean like they're really cool but they don't look like his early illustrations either. Yeah, no. They look completely cubist and geometric yeah. and really yeah. really They have a very I don't know any way to describe them other than saying they have a very specific style that <laughs> could yeah. be aligned with many other art styles but they don't look like the cute ceramic kitty figurines you might be thinking no. of at all. No. And apparently, so they, apparently they are very rare, which does kind of suggest that maybe there was a shipment of them that got destroyed, but no record of what ship they might have been on. Relatively recently, like within the last 10 or 20 years, there was a sudden influx of them showing up at auction Mm -hmm. to the point that people were like, I think these have to be counterfeit. Like, this is too many of these to have suddenly showed up on the market. Anyway, I think they're great. They're very fun. They're very Um, futurist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh i'm also thinking of there's one of his pieces i don't know what it's called i have seen it listed as like the cat's nightmare or something like that you know what i'm talking about where it's a kitty in bed and there are a million owls on the yeah. bed just, and staring all the at owls just staring at the cat yeah i love that one yeah yeah oh so fun kitties this has been like sitting around on my uh, on my to do list for a while as Louis Louis Wayne's cat pictures, like not just the person, but also like these pictures. So many pictures of cats, yeah, um, tons of them. I associate them with the place where I first saw them, which was cat shows. Mm-hmm. So that I, makes sense. I think about them in that very specific. Wonderful and odd environment (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) where everyone knows who Louis Wayne is, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it brings me delight. Yeah. Um, Because he didn't copyright any, even if he had copyrighted all of his art, at this point, most of it would probably be in the public domain in most places. So there's a ton of it online that you can just look at if you just Google Louis Wayne. A lot of the stuff that's going to come up first is going to be the Kaleidoscope Cats from... Later in his life, just because there's been so much writing on them, but just there's lots and lots of them to look at. Um, And so, so since Friday, if your weekend's coming up, maybe you can spend your weekend doing a deep dive into cat pictures. That sounds great. If it's not your weekend and you want to look at some cat pictures, I hope you can find a minute to do it. Um... We will be back for the Saturday Classic tomorrow. We will have a brand new episode on Monday. And if you haven't, you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.